Hello, I'm Lisa Smazarski, Editor-in-Chief of Stylist, and welcome to our brand new podcast, Stylist Live Sessions, recorded live at our annual festival of inspiration. In this episode, you're going to hear from Adam Kay, author of the Sunday Times bestsellers, This Is Going To Hurt, and Undoctored, his most recent book charting his life since leaving medicine. I have to say, chatting to Adam is always a bit like reading his books. It is a complete roller coaster of emotion, and this conversation was no different. He talked about his work supporting the mental health of doctors, his candid thoughts on Matt Hancock, plus his advice on navigating the world of career pivots and identity. As ever, Adam eloquently covers it all in his trademark funny way. I left feeling inspired, motivated to help, and in total awe, not just of Adam, but of all doctors and healthcare professionals who really must be grappling with the same challenges that he has whilst helping us day in and day out. Here's what Adam had to say. Hello, lovely big crowd. Welcome back. I am carrying Prosecco. I'm just going to pop that down here. Um, for those of you who've not met me yet, I am Lisa Smazarski. I'm the editor-in-chief of Silas. And this is the last talk of Silas Live 2022. It's sad and ah, would be good. Um, I'm really excited, though, that we're ending on a high. And I'm delighted to be chatting today to Adam Kay. Now, Adam first appeared at Silas Live back in the before times in 2019 to talk to us about his debut book, This Is Going To Hurt, his wonderful diary of his time working as a junior doctor in the NHS. Since then, millions of, us have, millions of us have now watched what Adam went through during that time, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in the brilliant BBC series he created of the same name that came out earlier this year. And he's also written a new best-selling book, Undoctored, the story of a medic who ran as a patient, one of the best names, incidentally, I've seen on a book, which is a hilarious but also incredibly moving look at life since leaving the NHS, and reflections of some of the most challenging parts of his life. So he couldn't be better placed to talk to us today about how to move on when things don't go quite the way you thought they might, and how you can glue things back together. Please join me in a huge welcome to Adam Kay. Thank you very much. Welcome, welcome. We've decided to buck the trend with Prosecco for this one, seeing as it's the swan song. Yeah. Very nice. So, um, we're here today. This is Undoctored, the book that you have written. has been out this year. And one of the things that um, really stands out is this kind of, I guess, a, a bit of a thread of the book is how our identities and our careers are so intertwined. And you're exploring your past life and your present life in tandem in the book. Um, is, was that a deliberate thing? Is that the relationship that you were thinking about? in terms of your identity? Yeah, so I saw the book as like both a prequel and a sequel to This yeah. Is Gonna Hurt. So I'd done, I'd sort of mined all of my stories from the ward, really. And um, something I'd never really talked about before was medical school, which I've always found is a really good way to upset people at dinner <laughs> parties with my horrible stories of, you know, cutting up dead bodies and how you learn to, you know, your communication skills and stuff like that. Um, and... And I wrote down lots of those stories. And then I also wrote down a bunch of stuff since I left medicine, since I pressed the button. Which, um, it occurred to me that increasingly people are asking themselves the question, what happens if I 
press yeah. that button and blow up my life. And, yeah. and looking at, and just talking about how I went from that then to when I am now. And what I realised is they were both sort of the same thing. Mm. And being a doctor and the way I was trained has really changed who I am as a person. So I think identity and career, uh, you know, a mistake lots of people make is making their job their defining characteristic. Mm. And I think that happens a lot in medicine. You know, you work 97 hours a week. There aren't many hours spare yeah. to, to have you anything else. Only, but, yeah. um, and the problem is, if you do that, you forget that you're a human being. Mm. And, you know, whatever your job is, however wonderful and brilliant, you know, the healthcare professions are amazing and we'll be without them. And God bless anyone who does it. But... There is always more to you. Mm. And actually, if you put too much into it, it affects you as a person. And if it affects you as a person too much, you won't actually be able to do the job that the, mm. you're trying to. Do you think that's where you'd got to? Was that your entire identity? It was. And it was a lot of doctor's identities to the extent that... the. F um, shortly after leaving medicine... Uh, so, so I left at sort of Christmas-ish, and then the following Valentine's Day, I was, I was out, um, you know, having a, 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 what would have been a romantic meal, uh, were my budget a bit better, but it was, uh, <laughs> as it turns out, a sort of extremely depressing <laughs> meal where you're just forced to eat this, you know, heart-shaped food. Um, and I, um, and I, I bumped into someone who I used to work with, mm. um, who sort of did the sort of weird, we recognise each other thing across a restaurant. Then afterwards, he was on his way out. And I was panicking about how I was going to pay for my one. And uh, he, um, he said, you know, in that sort of funeral voice, and how are you doing? Uh, yeah. Like, I'm all right, I think, just having dinner. But word had got out that I had left medicine because I'd just gone bananas. Mm. I'd sort of had some sort of, you know, the, the idea that I'd been sort of, dragged out and put into some sort of padded surfaced room and because that's the only way that doctors certainly at that time could understand the concept of someone leaving mm. um it's, it's 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 different it's different now but back then of, of my cohort of many hundreds of doctors who i trained with i was the second person to right to to leave and so um and i felt absolutely hollowed out when mm -hmm. I left because I didn't know it's why it's why I became a, a sort of writer comedian I didn't know what else I could do I'd so I'd gone straight from school where I'd been groomed to be a doctor mm. straight to medical school without a gap year and then straight uh, uh, straight into the job of being a doctor straight into Ops and Gynae and then when I left I was like, I don't have any other skills apart from the fact that when I was at medical school, I did these sort of silly, you know, sketches and things on stage, which there's a, a tradition of at uh, medical school. So I went for, <laughs> yes. went for that. So I, like, I, had nothing, I couldn't think of anything else I could do. And weirdly, telling medical students to stand up on stage and do a silly sketch about, you know, their professors make fun of things, is the closest you get taught uh, at medical school to a coping mechanism yeah. for the bad days. 
I got taught how to break bad news to a patient. I got taught how to deal with an aggressive patient. But never once, not for a minute of my six years at medical school, did they teach me how to deal myself mm. with that interaction. Because, like you remember from GCSE physics, every action has a leak and an opposite reaction. Newton or one of that, that, mm. that lot. Um, but it's never an equal reaction that comes back to you. But there is always an opposite. Yeah. And you do need a way of, of coping with it. And I had... The only thing I was taught was comedy, dark humour, that kind of thing. And it worked a bit, but, and I was taught how to drink, mm. and I still do that. I'm stressed today, I'm being interviewed, I'm drinking <laughs> my, my Prosecco. Um, but what they don't teach you is speaking to people about it, asking, you know, taking yeah. some time out. Essentially, what they don't teach you is vulnerability and being able to admit that you're not human, coming back to that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th this is something you've been, you've been working a bit in terms of how to talk about more mental health more with yeah. doctors. Are you seeing a change from the work that you've done outside of the system? So, I think there's a... Mental health amongst doctors, for whatever reason, is a taboo. Right. Um, Doctors are very bad patients. I write about that a few times in this book. Um, having left medicine, I'm left as a really, really, really <laughs> yeah. bad patient. So I tell stories of having a spinal injury. <laughs> Literally, my right leg stops working. That's I'm in the, on holiday in the, you know, in the Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas, um, which doesn't sound great now, but back <laughs> now it's like, say so I was saying the Hitler Hilton or something, but back then he was just a sort of reality bastard. Um, and, and I, persuade, I, I was so scared or whatever of seeing a doctor or felt so embarrassing to see a doctor, I didn't see one for a fortnight. And that was being pushed around in a wheelchair. I didn't see a doctor and had a stone in my urinary tract, uh, <laughs> which isn't fun. I don't, no one do that. Um, and how likely is it that I would see a doctor when I'm struggling with my yeah. mind? I mean, medicine is decades behind the rest of yeah. society. And also, boys aren't great at, no. um, at seeing doctors. Members of the K family aren't great at uh, seeing doctors. You can probably still see a scar I've got on my forehead <laughs> there. When I, was a, when I was a kid, my dad was a doctor, and so I think I got like 40 minutes off school in total over my <laughs> school career, because it was fine, I'll sort that out. So he, this was a ham-fisted repair of a head injury. <laughs> Had I needed dialysis at any point, I don't think you'd have given a, a bloody good bash at dialysis. But, um, so there is this problem and I've been... I'm desperate to try and shift mm. the dial a bit. Mm. Um, I had this... Um, the huge privilege earlier this year of adapting my first book, This Is Gonna Hurt, as a, as a TV show. And it's a very different show to the book because I sort of had to be, because the book was basically a sketch show of all these yeah. little different... And I wanted to talk about mental health because millions of people were going to hopefully... And they did. I mean, like, 8 million people or something saw the first yeah. episode. There's lots of people. I thought, we could make mental health in healthcare professionals front and centre so it can move from mm. taboo to unavoidable. Like, I'm going to tell you a fact now, which is so... You will think it's wrong... And the fact is this, you, you, you'll think I've got it wrong, but every three weeks, one doctor in the UK takes their life. There's suicides in a doctor every three weeks. And the reason that doesn't sound right to you is you've never heard of that before. 
because it's never talked about. And I think mm -hmm. it should be a headline mm -hmm. and a scandal every time it happens, but it's just brushed under the carpet. The same culture that says, you know, you're a doctor, you bloody get on with it. Mm -hmm. The macro version of that is we don't talk about suicide. Mm -hmm. And so, the, I mean, this is a very big spoiler, so if you haven't seen the show, do look away now. <laughs> um, but towards the end of the, the series, it leads up to... a uh, a moment where a brilliant, fictional, but based on people I knew, brilliant junior doctor called Shruti takes her life. And there's a memorial afterwards, and, uh, and there's a big, you know, we, we really, we really centre the, the show on that at that point. And um, we, plant, we planted this tree in a real hospital. We did all of our exteriors in Ealing Hospital in West London. And um, a bunch of people afterwards on Twitter said, I recognise the architectural beauty of Ealing Hospital, and I wandered round the, the grounds, and I looked to look for the tree and the plaque, and then I couldn't find it. Then I felt stupid, because obviously it was just mm -hmm. a prop. And yeah, it was just a prop, but it wasn't stupid. And I asked around, and it turns out that at that time, there was no memorial in the UK to healthcare professionals taking their lives. Such is the degree it's... Mm -hmm swept under the carpet, that the, don't even honour the memory of these thousands of, you know, brilliant people who've yeah. lost their lives, no thanks to the, the system. And, yeah. um, and so now there is a, the first memorial um, to healthcare professionals taking their lives at Ealing Hospital because we got in touch with the chief exec and we, thing, did a, yeah. we did a real thing. And now other hospitals are getting in touch saying, oh, should we do it? And that... Is a tree going to make a difference? No, it's just a tree. But surely the first step to resolving a problem is admitting that there's a problem there in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what a powerful thing, because that is, it's, I, I guess, and really the TV show did do that. It highlighted this issue that, you know, I don't think had been, you know, broadcast, certainly not broadcast in a mainstream yeah. way like that before. Um, in the book, and I was trying to just recall, I can't quite get the details, but you talk about seeing a sign in a workplace that was asking about, do you not feel well? Oh, about yeah. mental health. So, I met Matt Hancock. Yes, that's in what it his, was. In his office slash sex palace. <laughs> and um, so, he t so, what's happened was... So Matt Hancock had just got the gig as health secretary. And this is going to have been out for a, a few years and uh, you know, it was still loitering around in the charts. And loads of people tweeted him because he was quite big on social media. Yeah. He had his own app or something, didn't he? Mm. Mm. Um, anyway, so um, lots of people tweeted him saying, oh, you need to read this and sort of the book. And he was like, yeah, I'm reading it. And I believed him because he, you know, he, he sent a picture of it. Or, and he got in touch and uh, met up. And he's only been doing the job you know, not long at all. Um, and he said to me, if you could change one thing about the NHS, what would you do? And, I mean, the answer is loads of money. Yes. But he wasn't <laughs> going to say yes to that. So, yeah. uh, or 100,000 more staff. He yeah. wasn't going to say... So I said... Uh, so I, I, I do these live, um, live shows. Uh, I'm at the Hammersmith Apollo tomorrow. So, you know, um, and uh, come to that. I don't know. Anyway, but at, the t <laughs> at the time, I was, I was playing at the Garrick Theatre in the West End. And in my dressing room, on the wall, there was a sign that said, Theatre Helpline. If you've got any concerns about your mental health, about your finances or relationships, whatever it is, phone this number, free, 24 hours a day, paid for by your union, 
go for it, qualify councillors. I said, I've got that in my random dressing room at the Garrick Theatre. There is no mm. such service in the NHS. And he'd only just started, and he said, that can't be right, because it doesn't sound like it could be right. Give me, you know, give, give, give me a bit of time, I'm still finding my way around, and one of my people will let you know what the service is. Mm. And then a couple of weeks later, one of these special advisors got in touch to go, you know what, you're right, there is no, there, there is no mm. helpline. And, um, and this is my single proudest moment in everything I've, I've done as a, as a writer during this, you know, frivolous career I've now got compared to what I did then. Um, they, him and his department, and, you know, I generally don't have good words to say about the bloke. I remember what happened during COVID, but credit where it's due. He expanded a service that used to be just for London GPs to be for all doctors all across mm. the country and chucked a load of money in that. And when he announced that new service, the, the equivalent of that poster, he name-checked, this is going to hurt. And then at that point, I was thought... Mm. This is how the arts can have 100%. value. I mean, that, is, that means so much more than being told it's been translated into language 38 or it's sold this many copies in yeah. you know, Belarus or Bolivia or whatever it is. So that was, yeah, that was, uh, that was my only positive experience with a politician. <laughs> and I was going to say, it makes it not frivolous as well, your writing yeah, career. You can true. make a difference. Um, I, I'm going to just do an aside and then we must get back on track. Matt Hancock in the jungle, thoughts? Um, I mean... I mean, I can uh, hear a vibe. Uh, <laughs> I think I'd be too embarrassed to ever show my face ever again, let alone bunk off my... What would you... Does, is anyone his constituency? So oh, here. What happens, what happens if you've got a problem? Well, like, you can't, you know... I, do, I mean, it's just baffling. Why... I worry about anyone who wants to be a celebrity because I think fame is like the unfortunate side effect of success. But someone who's a politician who wants to be a celebrity yeah. politician, yeah, there's, motivation might not be. You're not in, you're not in it for the right reasons yeah. at that point. And so um, I, I hope he has to eat something horrible. Um, I believe he has, from what I've read. Um, right, I'm going to get us back on track. We were yep. talking about, um, obviously, identity in terms of... And you, you grappling with this new identity yep. as well. And one of the things that stood out to me was there's a passage where you talk about how you've left the word doctor on your credit card passport. Yeah. <laughs> is it still on there? Um, so it is still on my, it's still on my credit card um, because I'd like to think that... Uh, if you, you, know, you get a better table at a restaurant or <laughs> get upgraded on a plane, don't get so much as an extra pretzel. But um, I don't know how to change my, my, my name on it. And so, um, yeah, but I sort of... Um, Is that hard to let go of? I don't know how to let go. I was, um, there was a... I do still feel like a doctor, even though I've not worked as one for, you know... And you over are a, a trained doctor, a yeah. Yeah, I've got the certificate. Yeah. Um, but, I don't know, there was a... It was a weird thing. So I got, I got married a few uh, uh, years ago. And, uh, and it was just sort of a very low-key thing in a register office. And, oh, yeah, by the way, if you ever decide you want to get married in a, in a register office, um, organise your own witnesses. Because having watched too many rom-coms, I thought you can just get <laughs> some strangers um, when you're there. 
it turns out what actually happens when they say who your witness is, you're like, oh, we were just going to get some strangers. What they have to do is get some other people in the same council building who have their lunch break ruined once again by some idiots who didn't think the logistics <laughs> through of their day. So anyway, so we did that. And then filling in the, filling in the form at the end, and, uh, and one of the questions is what your occupation was. And I said, writer. And James, my husband, was like, oh, well done. You didn't, normally you pause or you say doctor and then correct yourself. So, but that took me a good, good nine, ten years before, yeah. before that wasn't my immediate answer. Yeah, I mean, so I was going to ask you about the pivots, but I'm going to guess it's not quite that momentous a moment in terms of you make a decision to go from doctor to writer. Because I, I think I'm right to think you started to dabble with writing whilst you were still working as a doctor. Yeah, so I'd done, I'd done a bit of that. And I guess my situation was slightly unusual because... I basically, I talk about this at the end of my first book, and I, and I mentioned it in, in this book as well. I had, to, I had a terrible day at work, and you know we've all had terrible days at work. But when you're working on a labour ward as the most senior doctor there, all you ever want is healthy mum plus healthy yeah. baby. A bad day means you don't see either of those two things. And I, 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 I was very badly damaged by it. I, you know, the culture was you just plough on, and I ploughed on, and then I couldn't do it, and I was just like. I'm not, I need to step away. And, um, and comedian was the only thing I could... So before I did writing, I, uh, I thought I'll be a stand-up comedian. I thought that sounded glamorous. <laughs> and um, so what stand-up comedy involves is, I'd say, 95 to 98% driving. <laughs> so you have to, you're like, uh, so you're offered a gig and you live in London and your gig's in Durham and, uh, and the money they pay you isn't enough to afford a hotel when you're in Durham. So you have to immediately drive back to, to London. <laughs> and so, you know, you eat a lot of service station sandwiches. And, um, and then I was, I was doing my sort of regular drives from, you know, all corners of the UK and thinking... I don't think this is quite what I was, the change I was going for, but I was, I was very lucky and I got a break um, in, um, in writing. And so I was like a writer for hire, writing for, for TV shows. And I don't know if any of you are freelance, but when you're first starting out in your freelance career, you take any job that's available. So my IMDB page for the first five years is the, looks like the random pukings of a sort of TV show generator. I'm writing sort of something for kids' TV, and then I'm writing sports reports, and then I'm writing for a sketch show. And, um, and things only changed when I, um, when I started trawling through my... Um, my diaries from and when I was a doctor. And you're writing about what you know as well, something yeah. familiar to you. which is weird, because I, 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 would, I would say to my agent, oh, don't be, put me forward for any medical stuff, because I want to prove that there's more to me than some bloke who used to be a doctor. And it um, turns out that, you know, the first time I could afford my Prosecco um, <laughs> was when I when admitted that, you know, that whole thing of write what you know. And, um, and there was a market for, you know finding out what it's like behind the, behind the scrubs. Yeah. Um, is there anything now that you uh, know now... Sorry. Is there anything you know now that you wish you'd known when you walked out as a doctor? Um, 
Yeah, buy Tesla shares. <laughs> that, was, that would have made the biggest difference to my, to my life. Um, um, I, I mean, here's the, this, isn't, this isn't funny, and it's, uh, this is, the, this is the, the actual truth of it. I had PTSD of mm. some description. I don't know if it was PTSD for sure, because I didn't see a doctor, because doctors don't see doctors, but mm. I would wake up at three in the morning a couple of times a week, back in that operating theatre where it all went wrong at work, pulse 200 beats a minute, covered in cold sweat, sat bolt upright, can't get back to sleep, don't want to get back to sleep in case I return to that nightmare. And it didn't go away mm. until I started writing about it, talking about it. I had a decade of it. And as soon as... And it feels weird now because I talk about it all the time, but mm. it wasn't until that that I sort of exercised those demons in mm. any way. And I was, you know, I was really held back and I really mm. struggled. And um, there's no shame in talking about this stuff. In fact, it's the opposite. It's the own... Life, whatever your life is... There's too much shit in it mm. to deal with it on your own. Mm. You're not meant to. You're meant to talk about stuff. Mm. And it's so damaging when you're taught to, you know, to keep it in. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess, as, you know, obviously, the, the thing, the gift you have given is that honesty and that candor. Because, again, you know, it's sort of breaking down some of those barriers to mm. have these conversations, whichever, whatever your circumstances, but to start having those. I, I mean... I'm trying to practice what I preach. So in on Doctor the New Book, I talk about some tough stuff that's that's happened to me. I talk about um, I talk about an eating disorder. I talk about uh, sexual assault and stuff that my partner found out for the first time when he read an early draft. Stuff that my friends, my family found out about when they read the. The book, which isn't isn't good, and these these are chapters that came in and out of the book about a dozen times, mm. and in fact, a week before it went to print, they were some of them were you know kept out. But I thought, if one person reads that chapter and then it helps them in some way or makes them realise they need to speak to someone or mm. get professional help or w whatever it is, then it would have been worth it. And I've been blown away by the number of people and generally not doctors, generally just people who've read mm -hmm. the book who've said, um, thanks for writing that. Now I've, you know, I've booked an appointment to see my, my GP and then it was, then I know it was worth it. Because yeah. I, I guess I am, I'm not, a, I'm not an innately good person. I'm driven by guilt of leaving medicine to try and <laughs> help people in other ways whilst not having to get my hands covered in blood again. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I mean, to be honest, obviously the guilt is clear in the, the book as you're writing it and leaving it behind. What, what, what inspires the guilt? The feel that you should have stayed? Is that for the people you were helping or for your colleagues? For, I mean, it started with my colleagues, the people who were literally saying, you can't leave. Yeah. And I was one of them. You know, I told... I've got a key... I, I know there are people I told who started to speak to me about, oh, do you think I should, you know, do that? I was like, no, no, you can't leave. No. I've got guilt about the money that was spent on my mm. medical education. And the, the biggest guilt of all is the people who are not helping the patients. And I really miss it. You go, you go into medicine 
for all sorts of reasons. For me, it was like, you know, my dad was a doctor. For other people, it's, you know, whatever it is. But ultimately, the true underlying reason is you want to help people. It sounds, you know, a bit pathetic, but that's, that's what it has to be at the heart of it. And then when you're no longer helping those people, there's a bit missing. And there's... But, and it's... That isn't selfless. There's a selfish element yeah. to, it, to it. It's like, you know, when you, when you donate to charity, you go, ooh. Mm. And, like, even better if you can share it on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> See, you get a dopamine. I got that dopamine hit from, you know, I'd come home from a shift on a labour ward three hours late and the dinner's in the cath and I've got blood on my face and I'm falling asleep at the wheel and I have to radio up, window down. But you've still got the smile yeah. on your face because of what you did and I and I missed that and I think that's probably the biggest thing that underpins the guilt mm. but so, so but presumably you know despite the pivot and what you do your day to day that part of your identity remains the same that that need to help now to support the career that you had before yeah um but I think most people want to help yeah and I'm in this very privileged position that I've got a platform whereby it makes it you know it just so happens that that is a specific thing that I've you know that, 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 I, that I want to try and shift the dial on um but I think there's a I don't know there has to be some compulsion to use one's powers for good rather than evil or, or a mixture of the two and for me that's if you know if I'm given these you know, great opportunities to be in front of you know all these people you know why not talk about this because you know some of you will work for the NHS and and thank you and look after yourselves and you know you're only human and most of you won't work for the NHS but you know people who do and Think of one of those people, check in on them, ask them how their day was. They'll say it was fine, but it's never fine. Um, keep asking them. On the day they have a really bad time at work, they will know that you're the shoulder they can cry mm. on. And, and that might make more of a difference than you will ever know. It might be the difference them, between them carrying on and some terribly self-destructive decision. Yeah. Um, you, you've touched on actually not in the book in a different interview about your mental health toolkit and your piano was one of the things in yeah. your toolkit. What, tell me about the toolkit. Tell me what this is that you've built for yourself. I think we all need to have a couple of things that we know we can do when you've had a crap day. And um, so, and I've just got, I know I've got these things and I know when, I'm, when it's all starting to fizz up. And so I walk the dog. Um, and it just forces me to get out the, the house and get some fresh air. And whatever the magic is of the fresh air, it worked. And then the dog's happy, and that makes me happy because I like the, the dog. And, um, and the, but the main thing I, I do is I play the piano. And I am a relatively bad <laughs> pianist. And so when I'm, like, reading music in front of me, it uses up literally 100% of my brain. So I'm sort of, you know, sort of making these noises and leaning forward and trying to, trying to play it. I can't think of anything else. When I've done that for a quarter of an hour, it's like I've sort of, you know, sort of had a, like a douche in my head or something. It's <laughs> like, so we're, we're, we're clean, we can start again. So that's, that's part of my toolkit. <laughs> It's, it's a good, I like the brain douche. I think we all need one of those. Um, I just want to, I, I guess we've run out of time, but just really, um, 
your final thoughts. So people thinking about identity and purpose. I mean, have you got over it? As someone has to explore, had to explore that, actually, because of the things that have happened to you and the, the way that you've been challenged with that, have, any advice that you would give to people? Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is to totally ignore expectation because I probably ended up in a career that I might not have otherwise have done because of expectation. Mm -hmm. My family wanted the best for me, and for them, as, you know, as a you know, Polish immigrant Jewish family, that's from the list of you know, doctor, lawyer, mm -hmm. accountant, civil servant, architect, you know, th they wanted, th for them, that was the best for me, but actually, expectation isn't always helpful, and um, that's one thing. Second thing is, we are a long time removed from the day where you leave school or leave university, start in an office, work there for 40 years, retirement party, gold carriage clock. So be aware that, you know, there's lots of young, young faces here. Your career will sort of, will have that sort of career path. It won't just be this straight mm. line of sort of slow incremental promotions in, you know, in one organisation. Accept that. Always think about what you want to do. Because if you're getting bored, if you're dreaming of something else, lots of people, because of, particularly because of that book and sort of the whole thing talking about blowing your life up, lots of people get in touch with me saying, I'm planning to blow my life up. I, I've just blown my life up. I am yet to hear from the person who regrets it. Mm. The worst I've had is someone saying, and then it didn't work, you know, being a whatever it was, bug catcher in, <laughs> in Namibia. And, um, and then I just went back to my old job yeah. and that was fine. But almost everyone says, I'm so glad I did that because that, you know, that crossed that off the, the list of regrets. What a place to end. I Before we do end, can yeah, we have on. a big round of applause uh, yes. for the BSL interpretation, which is incredible. Thank you. Thank you. I, th I think you'll all agree half an hour does not touch the sides of the conversation that we could have had today. But thank you so much and as ever for your honesty. I know that you don't think you make a difference, but you really do make a, a profound difference to a lot of people, I think. So thank you. I absolutely loved my conversation with Adam. He really is quite a remarkable man and it was such an amazing mix of genuinely funny stories, but really heartbreaking honest moments. If you want to continue the conversation on Adam's talk, visit stylus.co.uk or follow us at Stylus Magazine on social and share your thoughts. Don't forget Adam K's Undoctored is out now and should be top of your reading list. Now this is the last episode of this series of Stylus Live sessions but don't forget if you do subscribe you can go back again and listen to many more of our inspiring live talks from the likes of The One Show's Alex Jones, philosopher Alan de Botan, author and broadcaster Fern Cotton, podcaster Pandora Sykes and many many more. Thank you so much for joining us for this series of Stylus Live sessions.